Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 28th of February 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today by video link, we have Vanessa Bailey from Damascus and Charles Mallet. Uh, and uh, well, we're going to get kicked off with protest. And uh, of course, the narrative from James Cleverly is that MPs' lives are at risk, and therefore we've got to limit the amount of protest that's possible. Uh, before we get to James Cleverly, let's just have a look at uh, Tom Tugendhat speaking in the House of Commons. Mr Speaker, over the past few weeks we've seen disgraceful attempts to intimidate this House, to undermine the democratic process and to spread fear among those who have been elected to represent our country. This is unacceptable, Mr Speaker. It must end. To this House I want to say clearly that the Government will defend our democracy. We are working with the police and with Parliament to ensure that disagreements are resolved in this House through debate, not outside with threats of violence. And to those who seek to threaten this House, I say this. We will not be cowed. We will not be intimidated. And we will not be silenced. We will do whatever is necessary to protect those elected to represent us, to safeguard our freedoms, and to protect our rights. And I know I speak for colleagues across the whole House when I say we will always act in the interests of our constituents and our country. So that's the narrative uh, from the politicians. The question is, uh, are they coming under pressure because they are debating things, as he claims that he wants to do? Uh, well, of course, they're not debating things, and many of the things that people would like to see debated, uh, they're simply refusing to debate at all, or at the very least refusing to debate in any serious way. Uh, 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 various uh, requests for debates to take place being ignored or being pushed into the last uh, state of business on a Friday afternoon, these types of things going on. But anyway, James cleverly had uh, this to say. He said, the government will take every possible step to safeguard the people, processes and institutions on, upon which our democracy relies. I take the safety and security of all members of the House with the utmost seriousness. Uh, so he's talking about a number of things. He's talking about uh, limiting protests or requiring additional notice to the police. Uh, but of course, they're mainly concerned about the issue of protest outside MPs' houses. We talked about this a week or two ago uh, with the protest that was taking place outside Tobias Elwood's property. Um, so uh, here is uh, uh, Chris Philp, who is uh, speaking to Sky, I believe, about this issue of protest outside MPs' homes. In relation to MPs' houses, um, the view we take is that that is not acceptable. No public representative, whether it's an MP, councillor or anyone, should have uh, people outside their home address. You don't need to go to someone's house uh, to protest. In the example you gave, I spoke to Tobias Elbert about this actually last night in Parliament, and he was actually prevented from going back to his own house by, uh, with his children by essentially a mob. That is not protest. That is an attempt at intimidation. An attempt at intimidation, possibly. I'm going to say my personal view is I don't think outside MPs' homes is the right place to be. If there's any attempt to stop people uh, protesting outside constituency offices, I think that should be resisted absolutely. But Vanessa, I'm hijacking here a little bit. Well, what are your thoughts on the issue of 
protest outside MPs' homes? I mean, I agree. I don't think um, outside the home is particularly clever. But I think, I mean, we were talking about this the other day, that the risk here is um, that eventually government goes underground because of this um, alleged fear factor of MPs being uh, targeted for harassment, mobbing, and so on. So I think we're on a very kind of slippery slope here, and I think MPs need to recognise that the frustration and the anger that is boiling amongst their constituents is what should be addressed, not you know, um, hiding from those constituents or trying to um, back off from those constituents. Well, precisely. Uh, and then that comes on to the issue of the notice period required in order to protest. And Chris Philp had something mm -hmm. to say about that as well. The demands being placed on policing by these repeated protests are quite significant. It's cost about £25 million excuse me, um, so far. It's a big drain on resources. It's stopping police, obviously, looking after the communities where they would otherwise be deployed on a Saturday. Obviously, the more notice the police have, the easier it is to plan in terms of things like overtime and shifts and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, just to be clear, uh, we do obviously uphold fully the right to free speech and the right to protest. We are a free democratic country. So don't worry, we're a free democratic country and they're not attempting to shut down protest at all. Just to put this in a bit of context, just to explain that this is something that has been going on for quite some time, let's remind ourselves of this graphic. Uh, this is the legislation, some of the legislation that we've seen over the last couple of years uh, to shut down freedom of speech with the Online Safety Act, the National Security Act, the media bill, which is going through at the moment. Criminalising protest, this is something that's been going on for quite a number of months now. Uh, Police, Crime, Courts, Sentencing Act, Public Order Act, uh, these pieces of legislation there to shut down protest. Now we're getting the excuse of risk to MPs' lives uh, as another excuse to continue to criminalise protest. Uh, this is an extremely dangerous uh, direction to be going in, in my opinion. And uh, as Vanessa said, at the bottom line here is that we have uh, MPs that aren't listening to their constituents. They're not debating the issues that their constituents want to debate. Uh, and of course, constituents are then uh, heading down the route of direct action. Uh, that, that is normal. Uh, in the meantime, in the United States, uh, we, had, uh, we have had a protest described as an extreme protest, and that is Aaron Bushnell. Now, we didn't uh, discuss this on Monday because I wanted to talk to Vanessa about it today. Uh, but let's just have a look at uh, the words that he uh, said to camera before he took the action of setting himself out on fire outside the Israeli embassy in the United States. Is Aaron Bushnell. I am an active duty member of the United States Air Force, and I will no longer be complicit in genocide. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. Now he then walked uh, to the place where he did uh, what he did. He poured the petrol that was in the container that he was carrying there over his head and set himself on fire. Subsequent to that, uh, it took some time, I believe about a minute, before anybody attempted to take any action. 
Uh, none of the embassy staff, uh, security staff, took any action to help him. Uh, in fact, it was uh, somebody else that came along with a, a fire extinguisher. But let's just have a look uh, at uh, this little piece of video here. Uh, and you see the response from the Israeli embassy security staff. That is, he is already lying on the ground at this point, uh, already pretty much dead. Uh, and But their response is to be pointing a gun at him. Uh, they think that he is some kind of risk. I, I can't quite get my head around the mentality and the thinking here. Uh, the response has been quite uh, amazing. And uh, in New York yesterday, uh, this uh, vigil, now it was being pushed out on social media as a vigil for Aaron Bushnell. Of course, it wasn't for him. It was for the people of Gaza. Uh, it was in his name, though. Uh, and in this case, in Times Square, they uh, rolled out this uh, Print out of all the names of the people that have been uh, killed in Gaza uh, in the last few months. So uh, Aaron Bushnell taking a pretty uh, extreme point of view here and an extreme action. Uh, yesterday, I inter interviewed Jose Vega, who many of you will know the, the name because he uh, has come to notoriety over the last uh, couple of years for taking direct action himself and uh, walking into public events and challenging editors of newspapers, politicians, and so on. Uh, and those videos have largely gone viral. Uh, he's standing for Congress in New York now. Uh, and I spoke to him yesterday. We're going to put that video out next week. But I, I just want to show a clip from that uh, where he was discussing uh, what Aaron Bushnell did. Uh, you know, just to, I mean, I have to bring this up. You know, the guy who committed self-immolation yesterday, you know, a guy burned himself alive. And, in front of an Israeli embassy, he, um, you know, I think his last words were something like, I'm about to commit an extreme act of protest, but nothing as extreme as what the people of Palestine are going through. And honestly, it really does break my heart that this young man, 25 years old, right? The fact that this guy is the same age as me, and I'm deciding to run for Congress, and he decides to burn himself alive as a way to protest what's going on. He is a service. He by the very virtue of being in the military, has decided that his life, the meaning of his life will be to protect and serve his country and serve its best interests. And he has now felt that there is no recourse from the genocide that the United States and Israel is actively committing. And he did not want to be a pawn to it. He did not want to take orders. I think there was something that he, uh, Max Blumenthal shared this um, recently that uh, the Air Force was giving orders that, you know, the Air Force is supposed to help uh, in the air space in Israel or something. And so this soldier's like, I'm not doing that. And he decided to burn himself alive. I mean, that is an extreme act of protest, as he said. And my heart just breaks about the fact that, that he felt as if he had to do that. And I think our responsibility right now for us that are living has to be to provide a living alternative to the problems and the pessimism of the world. And my heart breaks for him. We will mourn him and his family. And I don't want to let his death go in vain. And I look at it and it's like, my job is to make sure that nobody else has to burn themselves alive to, 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 to get a message out there and tell the truth about what's going on. Vanessa, that's all our jobs, isn't it? Everyone. Yeah, and I mean, what's extraordinary is how the mainstream media has um, portrayed this as suicide, and they've even tried to, within 24 hours, smear him 
the only thing that they could find, which was published in the New York Times, was that he was an anarchist and that he grew up in a religious compound. That was <laughs> that was the the biggest dirt that they could dig up on him. But I mean, basically, they've tried to to erase the story and lessen the story because, of course, it reflects horribly. Um, on the Biden administration and the bipartisan um, role in enabling and actually taking part in the genocide of Palestinians by Israel with U.S. weapons. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Vanessa. Um, Charles, let me welcome you to the program and another form of protest, which is the farmers. And uh, what's the situation then here in the U.K.? Thanks, Mike, and good afternoon. Yes, you'll be aware from Alex Thompson that there have been protests uh, across Europe, farmers very much dissatisfied with the conditions they find themselves in. And as we broadcast now, there is a gathering of farmers in Cardiff, outside the Senate, Cardiff in Wales. Uh, And this has been posted here on Twitter by the No Farmers, No Food campaign. highlight the the tweet and indeed the article that it comes from. It is challenging at this stage to get an idea really on the messaging and communications front. The uh, No Farmers No Food campaign was set up by somebody called James Melville, who's in fact a Scot and not a farmer. But this does seem to be the banner that uh, farmers are coalescing underneath at the moment. And the sense of protest right now is in response to what's called the sustainable farming scheme, something that's been put forward by the Welsh government. You'll see the red arrow pointing to the deadline date of the 7th of March 2024. And since the evolution, uh, each authority will have the the powers effectively to set the conditions for funding schemes for farmers. And the Welsh government have put forward this consultation, some of which has been deemed extremely controversial because it's perceived that it pushes farmers towards a position in which they're not able to cultivate food. And therefore, that places their businesses under threat. So we'll just look at a bit of the text itself and indeed the preface from the Uh, Minister that's put it forward, um, Leslie Griffiths, the Minister for Rural Affairs and North Wales. And she says in her uh, statement at the front of this document, the urgency of the climate and nature emergency cannot be overstated. Its effects are impacting on our ecosystems, altering the very fabric of our world and pose significant threats to our agricultural and food systems. Recognising this, our focus on sustainable policies, innovative strategies and collaborative efforts is paramount in mitigating the adverse effects of climate change while ensuring a resilient future for all. Now, the reason I've highlighted cannot be overstated is that I think we are all aware by now that they have very much been overstated. And therefore, the, the scientific premise for changing a payment scheme on this basis is flimsy, to say the least. And it it is interesting to note at this point, it's not actually that that's being challenged, but it seems pertinent to point it out now, as I'm sure it'll be something that that is returned to as a theme. Um, One thing that is critical to observe, which I've pulled out of the document, is that the 
the amount of money that the Welsh Government has available to fund this scheme is not clear. In terms of our approach to payments, whilst our current position is that we do not know how much funding will be available to the Welsh Government as a whole, we do, however, look at how we propose to provide a universal baseline payment to farmers for carrying out a set of universal actions. So essentially a carrot and stick situation, which it seems at the moment farmers feel that they have little option but to subscribe to. The, it is worth saying that the basic payment scheme at the moment is still available at least until the end of 2024. But the challenging or at least the controversial part is on screen now, which is the Habitat Baseline Review. A requirement for the scheme will be for you to actively manage at least 10% of your land as habitat to benefit biodiversity and you will need to have all work towards 10% tree cover. So as I say, farmers are feeling that if they want to take advantage of uh, effective sort of funding that was there for different purposes, they have to change very substantially the nature of what it is they're doing. Um, there are, within the document, there are provisions about how to change the way that people farm without in fact taking food out of production. So I've got some, um, some of the uh, points on screen now, um, soil health planning, multi-species cover crop, integrated pest management, effectively trying to remove chemicals from the soil and improve the, the soil quality. So there is, there, it would be unfair to report this as purely a push towards nature recovery, which seems to be what's being done in England. But there are some, some initiatives within this which are to do with improving farming practices or at least improving the quality of soil that farmers are using. Um, this leads into to what I've reported on previously to do with DEFRA, who are managing the situation in England via the environmental land management schemes and how that's changed. And I, I thought I'd point out correspondence that I've had with the press office at DEFRA. Um, following the last broadcast on this at the end of January, uh, I challenged them or at least asked for further information because it wasn't clear at what point DEFRA might have to step in and stop land being taken out of food production. So I wrote back to them to say the information published today implies that there is no upper limit on the funding available for each application. Is this correct or is there a limit as a percentage of total land man managed? With such grants in place and the likely take up, what figures will DEFRA allow the utilised agricultural area and the total cropable areas to decrease to? And then I quoted back the figures that they had given, which was in effect 8.8 .8 million hectares, and that the cropable area was just over half of that, 55%, uh, and grassland had already decreased uh, across 2023 by nearly 3%. So my question was, what is the minimum permitted area by hectare of the utilised agricultural area? And as a percentage of the UAA, the cropable area, what measures does DEFRA have in place to avoid a significant reduction? Well, they came back to me confirming there is no upper limit. So effectively across the border in England, it's possible to put your entire farm into the countryside stewardship scheme uh, and therefore not cultivate any food at all, yet still be paid for it. DEFRA maintained that producing food and protecting diversity should go hand in hand. They don't really articulate how that can happen, especially if they're incentivizing people to de-risk and not produce food. Um, and they've also designed the schemes to pay farmers for measures that can increase the, uh, sorry, that can make their food producing businesses more resilient and so forth. Um, they, they talk further about this and indeed they say that the 
UAA has remained broadly stable and the countryside stewardship agreements have doubled. Now, this is disingenuous because, of course, in actual fact, people have transferred onto countryside stewardship from previous schemes. So to say that it's doubled is, is really a meaningless statistic. But what's, what's sort of dropped out of this is that the DEFRA press office has decided that they, well, they, they specifically said they're not going to be drawn into commenting on hypotheticals. Um, it looks very much like the press office is acting as a gatekeeper, deciding whether or not to release specific bits of information as opposed to, to simply telling one whether they have it or not. But the critical thing here, and especially when we think to what's going on in Wales, is that DEFRA cannot confirm that any plan or contingency is in place in case of a significant reduction of the total probable area due to farmers seeking to de-risk their businesses. Because the press office were either reluctant to or, or couldn't uh, confirm whether or not there was a plan, I've written to the minister, Steve Barclay, who has, has yet to respond. Now, why does any of this matter? It's because when we look at the future, we see documents like this written in 2019, which anticipates the sort of future in which Farmers play very, very little part. And I will just quickly finish on this. By 2025, we will be eating our way to a healthy planet and population, stemming from the unstoppable rise of public awareness of how our food impacts not only our individual health, but the health of the environment. Our palates, hungry for ecological public health, will become more and more adventurous in using food as a tool for environmental action. Well, if you've managed to stomach that, then you can go into the longer document and see exactly what it is that Sainsbury's have been writing about. Essentially, the premise of all of this is essentially a false one, to, to be declaring that the climate emergency, such as it is, or such as it purports to be, should dictate that wholesale change is, is, is wrought, does not quite add up. Yes. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that in extra, I've no doubt. Now, uh, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please uh, have a look at support.ukcolumn.org uh, and everything, every way that you can support us is there. Uh, you could pick up something at the UK Column shop. Uh, now, unfortunately, uh, th this will be the last batch of uh, MHRA Not Fit for Purpose t-shirts with June Rain's face on it because she, has, she is leaving the MHRA later in the year. Uh, and uh, well, this uh, perhaps is not a coincidence because, of course, uh, no sooner had we uh, uh, produced the Variants of Concern t-shirt a couple of years ago uh, than one of the faces on there, Matt Hancock, resigned. So basically, uh, pick up your MHRA t-shirt if you can, because they won't be, there won't be any more of them. Uh, but if you want to see somebody else go, then maybe you want to propose uh, a couple of t-shirt designs for us, because it seems like every time we produce a t-shirt design, somebody leaves their job. Uh, so do help us out with that if you can. Uh, you could also share any material on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org, ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, now, there's been uh, quite a bit of interest in the Climate Science Masterclass that, that David Siegel is going to be running with us. Uh, that's going to start in March. Uh, and uh, so a few weeks to get uh, signed up to that if you would like to. There is a cost to it. The details uh, are at climatecourse.ukcolumn.org if you'd like to join us for that. Uh, we would encourage as many people as possible to, uh, and then take that information and challenge uh, net zero policy uh, around the country. Uh, getting together with Alan Miller, uh, I was discussing uh, the Together uh, Association and, and their campaigns with Alan Miller uh, yesterday at 1pm. Uh, that's on the UK Column website, uh, if you'd like to go and see that, if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, and tomorrow, uh, Brian will be speaking to Justin Walker uh, at one o'clock about the Bradbury Pound. So uh, join us at 1 p.m. 
for that if you can. A uh, quick reminder of AV14 uh, coming up uh, soon uh, on the Sunday, the 26th of May. Uh, tickets still available for that if you'd like to go. Uh, also, Stand in the Light uh, Festival taking place in Cumbria in Workington, near Workington. Uh, May 24th to 27th. Uh, pick up your tickets for that if you can as well. And finally, the Sounds Beautiful Festival. Um, the, the, UK, the promo code for that is, U, is UK Column if you would like to uh, win the price of your tickets or perhaps some tickets for somebody else. But uh, anyway, tickets available for that. Uh, details on screen at the moment. Uh, Vanessa, let's uh, welcome you back to the programme uh, and move on to the question of Egypt and whether it's going to provide uh, security for uh, Palestinians pushed out of Gaza? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a question that's very prevalent at the moment. Interesting, after we did the report on uh, the Sinai Human Rights Foundation that had uh, reported on the uh, construction by Egypt close to the border, they've been now pretty heavily attacked by the Egyptian government that is denying all uh, stories reference Palestinian refugees being housed in what is effectively an open-air prison on Egyptian territory. So I'm also going to bring together today, because we've covered uh, the NEON project on a, on a number of occasions, um, but this is a report from August 2022 in Al Monitor, Saudi Arabia's NEON project to bring huge investments to Egypt. And why is this important in relation to the Palestinian refugee issue will come to. But Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman recently revealed his country's plan to pump huge investments into Egypt to complete the Saudi NEON project, including in the Sharm el-Sheikh tourist area on the Red Sea coast. And just moving on to um, the next slide, because there it also says they've signed Egypt and Saudi Arabia have signed a series of investment agreements in March 2018 and set up a 10 billion joint fund to develop about a thousand square kilometers of Egyptian lands in southern Sinai to be part of the NEON project. Now, what's interesting here is um, Clayton Morris of uh, Redacted told me he went to Northern Sinai fairly recently, certainly since the 7th of October, and he told me that there is huge money pouring in from Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Jordan. Um, and if we have a look, so here I've just highlighted on this map, obviously Elat in the southern occupied territories um, of Israel is only 60 kilometers from the Saudi NEON project. And if we look at the next slide, we can see where they're intending to basically connect. So this is taken from the NEON website. The 500 billion plan includes a bridge spanning the Red Sea to Egypt, southern Sinai, and an urban development of 10,000 square miles. Now, added to Saudi Arabia's investment on the back of its NEON project, we have Gulf investments in Egypt to keep the economy afloat and provide benefits in return. The UAE and Saudi Arabia are uh, effectively looking at investment in uh, Egyptian ports and particularly, um, as it says here, especially the UAE have deployed a strategy of investing in port infrastructures and securing or controlling strategic regional trade routes. Of course, this is also connected to 
the India-Middle East economic corridor that we've also spoken about before. Um, and then let's have a look at the connection of this to the Abraham Accords, which were basically a series of treaties normalizing diplomatic relations between Israel, the uh, UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco, facilitated, of course, by the U.S. administration between August and December 2020. Um, now, while um, Qatar has not yet uh, normalized relations officially um, sorry, with Israel, they are pushing heavily uh, certain trade deals, like in 2021, the diamond trade deal. So they are certainly pushing um, economic relations uh, with Israel. And the UAE was the first to normalize relations um, with Israel in August 2020. We then, of course, have um, various reports. I just picked one off uh, a search that I did, cashing in on genocide, Israeli firm pitches, beachfront real estate and level Gaza. As I said, there are multiple reports on this on Israeli real estate companies already eyeing up Gazan uh, beachfront territory um, for real estate development. And of course, who would benefit from this kind of real estate development? Well, this is a report from 2021 in Haaretz. Um, Egypt's monopoly on rebuilding Gaza serves both Israel and Hamas. But of course, what it does do is to give um, Sisi's government and his various warlord associates in the Sinai um, monopoly on this kind of reconstruction in Gaza in collaboration with Israel. And then this is a very interesting article that came out a couple of days ago. Um, will Egypt accept Palestinian displacement in exchange for debt relief? I recommend everybody actually reads the article, article because there's a lot of information in there, but I've taken out um, just one section so Riyadh's sudden eagerness to bolster economic ties with Cairo is palpable with unprecedented directors from both governments. Mutual investments are set to soar with Saudi Arabia aiming to ramp up trade to 100 billion. Recent collaborations include a 4 billion deal with Saudi-listed ACWA power for the green hydrogen project. Moreover, strategic initiatives like the Memorandum of Understanding between the Egyptian Ministry of Military Production and the Saudi General Authority for Military Industries and Agreements in Petroleum and Mineral Resources signal deepening economic integration. And then if we also look at a report, I think from 2023, yes. Um, so this is from the European Council on Foreign Relations, tipping point the risks of Palestinian displacement um, for Egypt, but hidden in the text of this report, which again, people can go and um, check out. President uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has firmly rejected apparently any scenario leading to the forced relocation of Gazans into its Sinai Peninsula. But of course, we have seen the evidence of a construction of some kind of open air compound. Um, so too, allegedly, has the United States. But in private, the Egyptian government was reported to be mulling a US offer to write off 160 billion in Egyptian debt in return for hosting 100,000 Gazan refugees, with, of course, the Israeli campaign uh, in Rafah looming. 
Um, and in October, the White House asked Congress for additional funding to address potential needs of Gazans fleeing to neighboring countries. And of course, the precedent of the US writing off Egyptian debt in return for their support of the 1991 uh, war against Iraq um, was set back then. So this is nothing new. But then if we also look at Egypt's debt to Gulf countries, we can see that the UAE and Saudi Arabia hold about 20% of that debt. So there is huge interest for Egypt in developing those trade relations um, and investment from Saudi Arabia and UAE. And finally, of course, Egypt must be interested in the development of the offshore gas exploration off the shore of Gaza, but also off the shore pretty much of Lebanon and Syria. And that amounts to 22.9 um, trillion cubic cubic feet, sorry, of recoverable gas. So basically, I think what it all points to, it's certainly in Egypt's interest to enable uh, a compound for Palestinians being driven out of Palestinian territory in Gaza with an eye on development of that territory for Israeli real estate companies, for the gas but also the fact that they would want to enclose the Palestinians and, and basically um, hide them away from the massive development that is going on in the Sinai. And that began, of course, with the destruction of the Egyptian Bedouin homes in Rafa, which began as, as far back as 2013. And also in the knowledge that since 2007, Egypt has been instrumental in the blockade of Palestinians uh, and various governments have been involved in the flooding of the lifeline Palestinian tunnels between Gaza and Egypt with sewage water. Um, so Saudi Arabia uh, has cracked down on pro-Palestinian protests. So it is clearly um, not, not seeing the Palestinian cause as a priority. And I would say that all of these countries, Gulf states, Jordan, that have normalized relations with Israel, they very much see the Palestinian cause as something that is getting in the way of their profiteering um, on trade relations with Israel. And so therefore, I think it's, it's extremely likely that Egypt is collaborating with Israel and with the Gulf states in providing an alternative for Palestinians that are, are potentially going to be driven out of uh, southern Gaza. Uh, and where's Russia and China in all this? Well, I mean, China has actually been very condemnatory, particularly of um, the US latest veto. I mean, they used incredibly strong language in their pushback against that when Algeria um, basically put forward a resolution for um, an all-out ceasefire. Um, I think, you know, Russia and China, well, China particularly has a policy of not getting involved in external um, military adventurism by the US um, alliance. Russia has its hands full with Ukraine um, and with the Middle East, with its military base inside Syria, of course. However, Russia has been increasing its uh, military uh, bases on the border with the Israeli illegally annexed uh, Jolan territory, which of course is Syrian territory. 
but occupied by Israel since 1967. So I think both of them are keeping a relatively low profile. Um, but as regards diplomatic process, I think both of them are being very outspoken um, about the U.S. involvement in, in what is going on in Palestine. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you. Uh, let's uh, move on. Uh, well, a bit more war, or is it? Because uh, the, the position of the military leadership in the UK becomes ever more laughable. So let's uh, bring Admiral Sir Tony Radican on screen. He was speaking at Chatham House in the last day or two. Uh, and uh, so he began by saying that uh, he wanted to reassure us all, anybody that's been alarmed by some of the recent commentary, Britain is secure, so we don't need to worry about anything. Britain is secure. Uh, and to remind us all of the extraordinary security we have through both our being in NATO and our being in nuclear power. So that's uh, good news, isn't it? Uh, so let's see what was next. He said, secondly, some reflections and observations about Russia, how it has struggled in Ukraine. Uh, I'm not sure what or if he's been taking some kind of drugs, but you know, this is just an incredible position that he's taking here. How we've been surprised at Russia's military weakness, uh, the predicament that it now has, uh, and how that is worsened by a strength in NATO. NATO has spent all its munitions on Ukraine so far, and we have the uh, manufacturing capability to replace them faster than we are depleting them. So I'm not clear how he can, with a straight face, take this position. Uh, he went on to say, let me scotch some of the more sensationalist headlines of late. We're not on the cusp of a war with Russia. We're not about to be invaded. Uh, no one in the Ministry of Defence is talking about conscription in any traditional sense of the term. So, Charles, I don't know what your thoughts are on this so far, but uh, that's a very telling statement. They're not talking about conscri conscription in any traditional sense of the term, but they're clearly talking about it. Yeah, I think history suggests that the only reason you ever tell anyone you're not talking about something is specifically so that you can then talk about it. And I'm sure that with conscription, that would be exactly the case. I mean, yeah, okay, he's he's splitting hairs. And as you say, what is he talking about? It's like they're reading sort of randomly generated briefs on all of this, because you could easily find something that Grant Shapps or Patrick Sanders, the Chief of the General Staff, have said that completely contradict what Radikin has come out and said there, as well as Stoltenberg at NATO as well. So I, I don't know why he would say such a thing, but, uh, but specifically with conscription, it, it's utterly irresponsible to even mention it if you're not in some way considering it. I think it would be completely reasonable to believe that they are in some way considering it, although maybe not in the traditional sense. Yes. Okay, so let's move on with what he said. Uh, so let's look at the next uh, bit, if we could, Stephanie, please. So here we are. Uh, uh, this is an alliance that is becoming stronger all the time. He's talking about NATO, of course, growing from 30 to 32 nations. So NATO expansionism continues apace uh, with collective GDP 20 times greater than Russia and a total defense budget three and a half times more than Russia and China combined. And yet we have a capability three and a half t times less that of Russia and China combined. Uh, this is a very interesting uh, point, and we will talk about that more in due course. But he then went on to say, uh, when we were unable to sail one of our aircraft carriers, uh, our people worked around the clock to deploy the second in a matter of days. 
That's the real story, and it's a phenomenal achievement. So is it, again, with a straight face, he is apparently saying uh, that we spent whatever numbers of tens of billions of pounds on two aircraft carriers. The fact that we were able to get one of them to sea while the other one was stuck in dry dock was a phenomenal achievement. This is an incredible position for the chief of the defence staff to be taking. But don't worry, it's not just uh, ships, it's also uh, helicopters, and at the moment, uh, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the International Military Helicopter uh, um, event is taking place in London at the moment. Uh, and James uh, C uh, Carlage was there. He is the Procurement Minister. He was there to uh, talk about the new contract for uh, helicopters that the UK government is putting out. He said, now over the decades, UK governments have commissioned, procured and upgraded numerous platforms, including many iconic names that you're all familiar, very familiar with, including Lynx and, and others uh, that everybody, of course, will be familiar with. Uh, he said, uh, I've had the privilege of flying a number of them recently aboard one of our Wildcats, flying to Yeovilton uh, to see how artificial intelligence has improved their support and crucially their availability. Uh, so they're using artificial intelligence to make sure the helicopter is available, but they're not using artificial intelligence to make sure the aircraft carriers are available, apparently. But anyway, uh, he went on to say, uh, our next generation medium lift helicopters will deliver a Swiss army knife platform, future-proofed and procured in a way to give the UK armed forces and our defense sector maximum clout and flexibility. So he was saying this yesterday, but a couple of days ago, he was at uh, Malloy Aeronautics to see uh, the latest uh, in military drones. Uh, the UK is simply going to be spending the small amount of £4.5 billion on the drone project uh, in the coming couple of years. Uh, but getting back onto the helicopters themselves, I'm not sure exactly how much they're intending to spend on this. Uh, this will uh, become clear in the near future, but bids are now open for a new medium helicopter contract as it moves to the invitation to negotiate phase. And the new helicopter model will support defence operations around the globe. Uh, the aircraft carriers can't, but the, air, the aircraft themselves will. Um, so the three uh, preferred bidders are Airbus Helicopters UK, not a UK company, of course, Leonardo Helicopters UK, uh, an Italian company that swallowed up uh, Westland and other, uh, and Augusta and so on, uh, Lockheed Martin UK, again, ultimately not a UK-based company uh, taking part in that. So we will keep you posted uh, on uh, how this uh, competition for the next generation of helicopters goes. And maybe someday we'll have a, a ship, to, an aircraft carrier to fly them off. Uh, but uh, uh, Charles, uh, let's move on to Somalia. Thanks, Mike. You may remember back in January, I spoke about controversy surrounding the Port of Berbera in Somaliland, in Somalia, and the apparent declaration of uh, recognition of sovereignty of Somaliland by Ethiopia in, re in return for access to the coastline of Somaliland. Now, um, the FCDO did not decide to comment uh, on the questions I put to them about this. They released one message on Twitter or X uh, expressing their hope that, um, that, that all parties concerned would, would sort of effectively remain calm. So the flavour of, of this segment, in fact, is characterised by messages on X. That seems to be the way the Foreign Office do business these days, but also the MOD. We see here that James Heapy, uh, a minister within the MOD, has visited 
Mogadishu and has met with the president of Somaliland, uh, sorry, Somalia. So again, you can see they split the cost of the photographer. The president, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, welcomes the UK minister for armed forces. So what have they been talking about and why was he be there? The government, the UK government reports by saying that James Heapy, UK Minister for Armed Forces, said Somalia is a key partner for the UK and is vital to security and stability across the region. My visit enabled me to see firsthand the impact of UK-Somalia security cooperation, as well as encourage greater collaboration and deconfliction with key international partners, including the UN, the US and the EU. Challenges facing Somalia are complex, but we remain steadfast supporters of the efforts of the federal government to take the fight to Al-Shabaab, take greater control of domestic security and deliver a secure and stable future for the Somali people. I've highlighted parts of that text because it, it comes across as being in some ways patronising, but also suggestive of the fact that in actual fact, relations between the UK and Somalia aren't nearly so important as relations between the UK and the UN, the EU and the US. So uh, Heapy um, ha had a little bit to say about it. There's another a message on X now, which I'll just put on the screen. Again, um, this is from the Somaliland, uh, Somalia side of it. Sorry, that is an important um, correction. I do not mean Somaliland, I mean Somalia. Uh, but they talk about the shared commitment to enhancing security and combating international terrorism in Somalia. They, they talk about collaborative effort uh, and all the rest of it. So effectively, they're all making the right noises about this. Um, again, going back to the partnerships that, they're, well, at least that James Heapy was talking about, we see here that this partnership even has a nickname, the Quad. This is sent by the British ambassador to Somalia, and he says partner cooperation by the Quad, meaning the EU, the US, the UN and the UK, is vital to ensuring a secure, sustainable future for Somalia. So again, um, that there is more than a whiff of sort of neo-imperialism about this, as though these organisations are allowing Somalia to conduct certain activities and at some point in the future that's yet to be determined, Somalia will perhaps its own two feet. Now, the timing of this is interesting because this was dated 26th of February. On the 22nd of February, the, the federal government of Somalia released a statement saying that they had signed an agreement, a defence and economic cooperation agreement with Turkey. And again, we have to look to X to find out a little bit more detail, but from the president himself, I signed and ratified the defence and economic cooperation agreement between the Federal Republic of Somalia and the Republic of Turkey. This historic agreement Make, marked a new chapter in our nation's journey towards a secure and prosperous future. The agreement embodies a shared commitment to combating all forms of illegal activities and will enable us to build a capable naval force central for our maritime security. So he's been quite specific there. He goes on to talk about bolstering our blue economy, developing crucial economic sectors and creating opportunities for our people and the region. Now, some of that is obviously relatively bland, but it is worth noting that the specific reference to a naval capability is not something really that the UK or indeed the Quad, as quoted, has, has talked about much. So, in effect, we can see this, this sort of scrapping going on over the territory of Somalia, and we shouldn't forget that 
although, of course, the United Kingdom is, to all intents and purposes, outside of the European Union, still has an awful lot to do with it. And Somalia is one such case. The European Commission uh, showing here that they're aiming to deliver a comprehensive uh, level of support to Somali National Army on the European Peace Facility. This is released just uh, just over a week ago. Uh, and from that, they specify the amount of money that's sort of moving across here, which is um, their Commission's Service for Foreign Policy Instruments acts as administrator for assistance measures under the EPF. It also supports Somalia with crisis response, conflict prevention and peace building actions for an amount of 41.5 million euros for the period 2023 to 2024, covering notably rapid stabilization in newly recovered areas. So there's an awful lot of money moving through the system, in particular uh, in Somalia. But the, the other bit, and again, I go back to the reference to the Navy, is of course the strategic position and access to the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden, something that's been talked about an awful lot, but never really with specific reference to Somalia or Somali land. But of course, just a just a reminder that um, the port, the port of Berbera, which is controlled by DP World, a UAE-based company, also has a very large port in Turkey, DP World, Yarmouka, and this is just a slide to, to show that, and really to act as a reminder of all the, all the different influences that are being brought to the fore here. So it seems like James Heapy's visit to Somalia is, is by no means uh, a random one, but of course there will still be struggles ahead as to who does get to control the sort of strategic waters and indeed the inland areas surrounding uh, the port of Berbera in particular. Uh, Charles, thank you very much for that. Vanessa, um, bring us up to date with Gaza. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that we generally don't show um, sort of, it's not long, long, but it's three minutes. I'd also like to make the point, I don't know who made this video. It's very well done. Um, but if anybody does know or, or any UK column viewers made it, please could you reach out and let us know. I have been asking everyone that's been sharing it, but nobody seems to have an idea. Uh, basically, what this shows very clearly is how Israel has conducted um, the genocide in Gaza in particular, um, covering every single area from health to education um, to agriculture and farming. Um, and how each sector has been deliberately targeted by Israel. So let's just play the video, Mike. This is the map published by The Guardian on the 30th of January, showing the extent of the destruction wreaked in Gaza by Israeli bombardment since the 7th of October last year. It's shocking enough in itself, but when you cross-reference it with other maps, you begin to get a sense of the way in which the conditions of life in Gaza have been systematically annihilated by Israeli forces. This is a map showing every residential building in Gaza before 7th of October. This is what was left as of the end of January. And of course the destruction continues across the territory, but particularly right now in Rafah. Here is a map of greenhouses in Gaza before the Israeli bombardment. Greenhouses are a lifeline for many Gazan families, providing greater and more secure access to healthy foods. This is what is left of those now. And of course, without a functioning water supply, even most of these have been rendered unusable. 
Also in terms of food security, here are Gaza's warehouses before the Israeli carpet bombing. And what's left? This is a map of tree crops in Gaza before the destruction began, including fruit trees and olive trees, which have provided food for residents and been among Gaza's major exports. This is what currently remains undamaged. This map shows all private schools, Palestinian Authority schools, UNRWA schools and universities running in Gaza before the 7th of October. And here are those that haven't yet been destroyed. None of these is of course currently able to function as such in any case. Here is a map of major health facilities in Gaza before Israeli forces began to attack them, including prenatal facilities, mental health facilities, clinics and hospitals. And here is what remains. All of this destruction would take many decades to restore, although of course it seems unlikely that those who built and grew all that has been pulverized by the Israeli bombardment will even be allowed to return to do so. One prominent feature of this map emerges when you subtract the destruction caused to built-up areas, which have been more or less annihilated. Here you can see a line of destruction stretching down through the center of the territory. This particular swathe of bombardment aligns with the so-called humanitarian corridor announced by Israel along Salah al-Din Street in November last year. When residents of Gaza City in the north were ordered to evacuate, they were promised safe passage along this street. However, many witnesses have described Salah al-Din Street as a corridor of death and humiliation. Civilian convoys and vehicles have been repeatedly bombed and targeted, and testimonies from dozens of witnesses collected in Gaza by journalist Tarek Hajaj describe Palestinians having been summarily executed and killed by Israeli snipers, including children, their parents ordered by their murderers to abandon their bodies by the side of the road. According to the testimonies, people were made to crawl on their bellies through checkpoints, forced to undress and descend into pits filled with dead bodies, sometimes to be shot, sometimes to be released, among many other horrors. The street is littered with the bodies of men, women and children in various states of decomposition. There are millions of horror stories like these behind these simple red swatches which delineate the annihilation of a people. I don't think there's anything to add to that. I mean, it's just, it's a horrifying indictment. Thank you, Vanessa, for that. Okay, uh, Charles, let's come back to you and to health. Uh, and uh, well, what is reaching the last mile all about? Thanks, Mike. Reaching the last mile seems to be an umbrella term. This um, is a poster from COP28, which actually refers to a multitude of things. But it's, um, it's really the inference that remote communities are somehow harmed by their remoteness and that therefore everybody has to do everything they can to ensure that they have everything that they might need. And, and again, we see here Last Mile Health, an organisation that seems to be positing that there is somehow a relationship between remoteness and poor health, even though they don't go on to explain exactly how that's the case or provide any evidence. But um, nonetheless, they've launched an African initiative. And last week, when I was talking about my visit to Revital Healthcare, the provider of the non-reusable syringes, it came up that the government of Kenya is going to be putting outreach workers effectively last mile workers into the community to educate and then of course this will be followed up by testing and then lo and behold provision of the very medicine that is recommended for whatever it is the test shows that people have so last mile health here 
putting professionalizing 200,000 community health workers across 10 African countries by 2030. And they're by no means alone in becoming involved in this. I think it's always interesting to look at who holds the purse strings. Here we have the key supporters, which are in effect a mixture of philanthropists or so-called philanthropists, bankers and pharmaceutical companies, the ones that might jump out of the usual suspects, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer, USAID, uh, and, and so forth. Um, so, of course, that's not a huge surprise to see that those are they. Again, an illustration of how widespread this is. This is Virgin celebrating Last Mile Health's 2023 milestone. So this is a bandwagon that everybody seems to be jumping on. But as I say, there's, there's no real evidence to suggest that there is a requirement or indeed a correlation between uh, remoteness and ill health to the degree that something like this has to be done about it. And indeed, there's no suggestion that, of course, any activities that are conducted would be done in such a way as to monitor whether or not they are making a positive or negative impact. They're just, they're just riding straight into this particular valley, deciding this is what is to be done. Uh, and um, we'll just go into a little bit more detail here to get a flavour of what it is they're doing and how they're doing it. Last Mile Health here declaring that community health worker training drives improvements in childhood immunisation rates in Ethiopia. As I say, it's nothing to do with monitoring health. It is simply metrics by which they can articulate how many drugs have been consumed by people and therefore how much money has swelled through the system. But as I say here, it is simply the childhood immunization rate. And just to quote from that document, in 2021, Ethiopia's Ministry of Health estimated that nearly 800,000 children across the nation had received zero doses of routine childhood vaccines. Facing a serious risk of illness or de death from preventable causes, nearly 90% of these children were concentrated in four regions. In 2023, having identified immunisation as an urgent community health priority, the Ministry launched a new partnership with Last Mile Health and Gavi Vaccine Alliance to address these needs through new evidence-based training for community health workers in the regions and Woreda's most in need, Woreda's being an Ethiopian term for in fact, a, a regional, a sort of administrative region. So again, here, the, the complete absence of evidence that this is actually required. It's just a stark statement that this number of people have not been immunised and therefore they must be immunised, as opposed to identifying whether there is, in fact, any sort of problem in the system first. It hasn't stopped the World Health Organisation from jumping in. And the slide I've got here, I would just draw your attention to the text at the bottom, which is hard to read, but this is talking about the last mile health training tool. And it just seems slightly laughable, but the, in their description, they say it's primarily a tool for frontline health workers, helping them to do away with bulky and expensive textbooks and other traditional training materials. I would say that sounds a little bit alarming to think that whatever it is that is going to be informing these at the expense of uh, information that was pre previously regarded as being perfectly reliable. And I'll just conclude by articulating the, in a way, the, the massive hypocrisy of these sorts of schemes. And here we have a promotion from, of all companies, the Coca-Cola company, who've probably got to shoulder more of the blame for Africa's ill health across all age groups and monstrous plastic pollution. 
um, than most companies. But anyway, nonetheless, they have got Project Last Mile, and they say that it's Coca-Cola Company's pioneering partnership to strengthen health systems uh, by leveraging our distribution and system network. And they finish by asking this question. If you can find a Coca-Cola product almost anywhere in Africa, why not life-saving medicines? Well, indeed. And essentially what that boils down to, you can make money by selling Coca-Cola to the world's most remote communities. You should be able to do the same by putting pharmaceutical products into their arms. So that's the disappointing reality of the last mile health sort of initiative and indeed the rhetoric surrounding it. And I think we're going to see an awful lot more of this. Okay, thank you, Charles. Thank you very much for that. Okay, well, we uh, are going to have to finish there, but we've got just one final uh, meme to show at the end. Uh, and this is a lady holding up a placard uh, saying, every man with a pair of testicles is voting for Donald Trump in 2024. And underneath that, it says, every woman with a pair of testicles is voting for Joe Biden in 2024. Does that sound about right? And I think that probably does sound about right. So we will leave you with that thought. Uh, for today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to Charles and Vanessa for joining me. And uh, we will be back uh, for a little bit of extra if you're a UK call member in a couple of minutes. Uh, but otherwise, uh, we will see you on Friday at 1pm as usual. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.